This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. On this holiday weekend, I wasn't sure uh, how many folks would be able to be here tonight. And so we've prepared a message that I hope will be a blessing to you. Uh, encourage you, uh, maybe there will be a little bit of nostalgia as we look back, especially for some of you that are a little older, but it's not for that purpose. Uh, I believe that as we look back, not only can we learn from history, but we can learn from the lives of those who are used of God to accomplish some great things. We live in a great nation because not only those who sacrificed, but as they were living, the, the sacrifices that they made, the character uh, that they uh, exhibited, and their willingness not to quit, even in the worst of circumstances, the hardest of trials. And so tonight we want to talk about the greatest generation. The greatest generation. We want to remember them. Many of those did lose their lives on beaches and on the seas. Uh, but what characterized the greatest generation? What I'm going to share with you tonight comes from a book that was written back 2009 by Brett and Kate McKay. It's entitled, A Man's Life, Lessons in Manliness. And what they did is uh, wrote a book, and along with that book, uh, they also drew in material uh, that had been authored by Tom Brokaw. He wrote about his dad. He wrote about his dad's generation. Some of you have read that book uh, entitled, The Greatest Generation. And some have even credited him with that expression. And so using those sources and then drawing from the scriptures tonight as well, we want to take a look back, remember the greatest generation, and look at some of the reasons that they had the godly character, uh, had the perseverance. Now obviously not all of them knew the Lord. Uh, but why they were able to do what they did. Every generation has its share of men who fully live like men. But there may never have been a generation when the ratio of honorable men to slackers was higher than that generation born between 1914 and 1929. These were the men that grew up during the Great Depression. And we're going to say a lot about that tonight. They were the men who went off to fight what some historians have called the big one. Remember the war to end all wars? It didn't. And then came the big one. These are the men who came home from that war and built the nations of the Western world into the economic powerhouses that we know today. 
They knew the meaning of sacrifice both in terms of material possessions and of real blood, sweat, and tears. They were humble men who never bragged about what they had done or been through. They were loyal, patriotic. They were level-headed. Some of you are smiling right now because you're simply thinking back to mom and dad. That's who they were. They were our greatest generation. I would love to see another great generation that surpasses them. I don't know that we could ever get there. Tom Brokaw gave them that name. Again, many believe that he, he originated that. And it's a bold claim. One that, by the way, they would shy away from. We weren't the greatest. Partly because they were also raised to know their history and they knew that there were a lot of great Americans that preceded them. They weren't made out of different stuff uh, than we are, but they were faced with greater hardships and challenges and successfully arose to the occasion. They weren't perfect by any means, of course, but as a whole... They were a cut above the rest. When you tour any naval vessel from World War II, you can't help but notice, for instance, the tiny closet-sized kitchen where a couple of men prepared meals for hundreds of sailors as the ship rocked to and fro. At the, as, uh, and at the giant guns that the men used to blast the enemy and knock planes out of the sky. One tends to picture 30-year-old guys like Tom Hanks and company that were doing this. But a lot of them were just 18, fresh out of high school, if they finished school at all. So the purpose of tonight's look back is to challenge us to dust off the values of the greatest generation and apply them to us. Now, we can't just seek to emulate internal character and integrity. We ought to know by now that hardship can produce that in a life, but the only way it's going to be pleasing to God and stick is if we're yielded to the Holy Spirit of God and He is producing that in us. But we do need to look back to those character traits, realize their biblical basis, and see how God can use it if we'll embrace them once again. <clears throat> I hope that tonight will be a challenge to you young people. You say, Pastor, I just finished the school year. I got to close my history book. Well, let's open it back up just for a little time, and I hope that I'll have your undivided attention. What were those values, those lessons that we should emulate today? Well, here's the first lesson. Let's move right into it. Take personal responsibility for your life. Be responsible. Be responsible. While today's generation often shirks responsibility as too much of a burden, the greatest generation relished the chance to step up to the plate and test their medal. Yes, during World War II there was a draft. <clears throat> but you know, many of us have family members. We can look back and we know the stories. Be ever, before the draft was ever instituted, they were already in line signing up. 
especially when Pearl Harbor happened. One son of a World War II Medal of Honor winner remembers that his dad and his, uh, uh, remembers of his dad and his peers. Quote, for them, responsibility was their juice. They loved responsibility. They took it head on, and any time they uh, could get a task and be responsible, that was what really got them going. And when the gen uh, greatest generation accepted responsibility for something, they also accepted all the consequences of that decision, whether good or bad. They were not a generation of whiners or excuse makers. They took pride in personal responsibility, even when the odds were stacked against them. I did not bring it with me tonight, but I got to meet several of the group that I'm about to mention to you. Many of you know who the Tuskegee Flyers were. There's a picture of some of them, the first African-American aviators in the American military. And these guys overcame great obstacles, including the segregation and racism of the Deep South. They trained in Kentucky. Uh, they faced the challenge of other aviators thinking just naturally because of the color of their skin that they were better, and these guys proved them wrong. Over great, great uh, hurls and opposition, in fact, they, their uh, claim to fame was protecting bomber squadrons over Germany and Europe during World War II, and uh, their success uh, it was unmatched. And so, uh, several years ago, uh, in Reading, Pennsylvania, and I don't know if they're still doing it. If they are, I would encourage you to take the family up and take this all in, but they have... Uh, up there, uh, World War II weekend. They have warbirds that come in and they have reenactments. Uh, but one year when we were there, the Tuskegee Flyers, those that were still living, were there all sitting behind tables signing programs. And while they were sitting there, behind them was, was war video of them defending uh, bombers and involved in dogfights over Europe. And in my office, I have a program that several of those guys signed. It's a treasure. But they took responsibility. Let me give you another example. And this one uh, is from a man who became a personal friend. His name is Bill Wick. Bill served in the U.S. Coast Guard from 1943 uh, until 1946. What's interesting about Bill, is that he was saved through the ministry of the navigators right here in Norfolk. I met him. I was his pastor up at Bible Baptist Church in Westchester. And one day we were sitting in their home and having lunch together. And he, being encouraged by his wife, uh, shared uh, a story with me. Uh, he was involved, and I didn't know that the Coast Guard had this until I talked to him, but he was involved with the Monad Patrol of the, of the Coast Guard. And they were tasked with defending the eastern seaboard. He was stationed on the New Jersey coast. And he tells the story that one night 
one of his coasties did not come back when it was time for everybody to be back in the barracks. And this man had a drinking problem, and so they assumed that he was out there somewhere in town or on the beaches, passed out. And the commander told Bill to mount up and to go find him. Well, Bill obeyed. Nighttime, he was sleepy, but he mounted up, and he went out there. And while he was working those dunes and trying to find this coasty, there was a break in the clouds, the moon shined out, and as he looked out onto the Atlantic, there was a German U-boat on the surface recharging its batteries. He had a radio. He called in the location of that German U-boat, and uh, you can look at it in the historical record. They sent aircraft in and bombed and sunk that German U-boat, and Bill Wick was credited with the kill. But this man went on to humbly just live his life, raise his family for God. Uh, I got to meet one of his sons who was a missionary uh, overseas, and uh, Bill's with the Lord now, but what a sweet testimony, and a man who could fix anything and would do anything for you if he could encourage you. So what's the biblical basis for this first trait? Just take responsibility. You realize that God has given us all a calling, and he's given us for responsibilities to fulfill. That's talked about in Matthew 16 and verse 24. It's repeated also in Luke 9, 23. And this is what Jesus said unto his disciples. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and, say it, follow me. So Jesus was here fulfilling a responsibility that the Father had given him. His responsibility was the cross. And his entire life was consumed with what would lead up to the cross, but it represented the will of God. Your cross, which probably will not be a literal cross, but your cross is the specific will as why the Father has you on the planet right now. Take that responsibility. It's so easy to hope somebody else will do the job, will do the work. But we have that responsibility. And again, if we're following the Lord, we're fishers of men. Jesus said that. But if we are focused on whatever it is that God has us here to do, that's his will. That's our cross. Some of those responsibilities are easier than others, but we are called to do that for the glory of God. So along with taking responsibility for your life, the next lesson that the greatest generation taught us was this. Secondly, be frugal. Now some of you are tempted to ask Siri right now, what does frugal mean, okay? Uh, do you get frugal cakes at the fair? No, that's, that's something else, all right? But be frugal. Many of the grandparents of my generation had houses stuffed with boxes of stuff. Some of you, they're passing, have had to go into their, those sheds and barns and houses and clean it out. 
They had a sort of pack rat mentality because they grew up in the Great Depression where the next canister of oats or pair of pants was not guaranteed. They had to make it or fix it. They learned to live on less and be grateful for the things they had, no matter how humble. My first pastorate, uh, there was a, an older couple in the church that had been through the Great Depression. The man was already with the Lord, but his widow was still in the church. And uh, we were close to them because one of my cousins married one of their daughters. But every summer, he would have his pickup truck full of things out of his garden backed up to the church, and he just wanted to make sure nobody went hungry. And uh, his daughter, again, who married my cousin, would share that every year, whether they needed it or not, dad would go out and he'd buy everybody new shoes. Because growing up, he never got new shoes. But they were frugal, and they were grateful for what they had. It didn't take the latest electronics to brighten their Christmas morning. An orange at the bottom of a stocking was enough, pardon the expression, to knock their socks off. They, they were just thankful. My dad would talk about the toys that the boys made because that if they didn't make them, they didn't have them. And they were thankful. So be frugal. Once again, one of the mottos of the greatest generation uh, was that if they didn't have it, they'd work for it to attain it. They didn't go into debt to purchase the latest car or largest house. Instead, they were thrilled to move into the box houses. Uh, they're known, they were known as war homes, as I found out, in places like Portsmouth. You can drive through those neighborhoods. You can see houses. They're, they're boxes, all, all pretty much the same dimensions, though they, uh, people have done all kinds of different things to them. But those were war homes that they threw up quickly to, to take care of all the veterans that were coming back from the war. The thing that makes us smile is that those box houses, about the size of some people's garages now. The greatest generation used to think, use it up, wear it out, make it do, or do without. Of course, it's hard to make it do if you don't know how to fix it. And thus, handiness was also central to that generation's frugality. During the war effort, people came uh, home. Uh, they learned to do with less also so that the troops could have enough. Ration cards. Some of you may even remember those, though I'm not trying to bring up your age or anything. Let me just share an illustration, one of these men that, that I got to meet, and then I'm going to share what God did in this man's life. The man's name was James, or was Lewis James, who served on a minesweeper in the U.S. Navy from 1944 to 1946. I got to spend some time with this man because he was the father of a good friend, uh, Don James, who retired as a teacher of the Christian school up in Westchester. Uh, his mother, Don's mom, was in our church. She had been led to the Lord by Don in her later years. But Lewis, 
nicest guy, had never gotten saved. But he would tell stories about being on a minesweeper. I didn't know this. You, uh, you sailors probably know this. But on a minesweeper, uh, the whole of your boat is wood. Because those mines, the magnetic, you don't want to be drawing those to your vessel. And so he would tell stories about, about looking for mines and, and uh, disarming mines out there during the war. From humble beginnings, he fought for his country and then returned to raise a family in humble surroundings up in Pennsylvania. Again, his son trusted Christ, led his, Don led his mom, Lewis's wife, to the Lord. But let me share with you what God did for Lewis. After a very productive, humble life, in his later years, Lewis got dementia. In fact, severe dementia. And uh, he, you could sit with him, he'd smile, you could carry on conversation, but again, you'd have to repeat the conversation over and over. Well, one night, uh, Don and I had talked, and we had been praying that Lewis would come to Christ, and so... One evening, we went to the retirement community where Lewis and his wife uh, were living, and we sat down with them that night for the express purpose of giving Lewis the gospel before it was too late. And we had prayed. We had begged God to work that night. Let me tell you what God did. We sat down with Lewis, and I opened my Bible, and I started to share with him the gospel, the plan of salvation. I've never witnessed this I had not witnessed it to this point. I have not witnessed it since. But as I witnessed to him, God reached down and moved the clouds and the fog from his mind. That man was completely lucid as we talked. As I gave him the gospel, he came under conviction of his sin, admitted his need for Christ, bowed his head, and he trusted Christ that night. We rejoiced together for a few minutes, and then here's what happened. The cloud moved back in. And we visited, we started repeating ourselves, and he didn't have much recollection of what had happened 15 minutes earlier. But Lewis James is in heaven. Isn't God good? Isn't he faithful? But as I think back to the greatest generation, I think of Lewis James. Now, what about this matter of being frugal? I would take us now to Matthew 6. If you just join me there, this is a passage that not long ago we looked at in detail. But let's be reminded, Matthew 6, beginning in verse 31. Therefore, take no thought. Do you know what? If you put too much thought on material things, you're going to become unthankful. Because if that's where you set your mind and your heart, you'll never have enough. Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. And I'm not going to mark my Bible with it, but you could put right after that phrase in your Bible, secular advertising. It's intended to make you discontent. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. 
God will supply your needs according to his riches and glory. Therefore take no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought of the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. But the blessing is, sufficient is our God to not only take care of the evil, but to take care of your needs in the day, for the day. And so you and I can trust him. And remember, godliness with contentment is great gain. It's certain we didn't bring anything into this world. And it's certain we're not going to take anything out. So be frugal. Don't try to get all you can and can all you get. Trust God and be content and be frugal. Take care of what the Lord has given to you as a good steward of Jesus Christ. Let's move on to the third lesson tonight. Be humble. Be humble. Typical of the greatest generation is the story of a son or daughter who finds a war medal stashed in the attic after their father passes. He never told them about it. They didn't even know. Even in their exploits, or even if the man's exploits, or in some cases, the woman's exploits, had been brave and heroic, the greatest generation rarely talked about the war, both because of the difficulty in remembering such carnage, but also for the sense that they had simply um, fulfilling their duty. And thus, they had no reason to brag. They, they just didn't brag, didn't talk about it. Once again, Tom Brokaw observes in his book, The Greatest Generation, quote, the World War II generation did what was expected of them, but they never talked about it. It was part of the code. There's no more telling metaphor than a guy in a football game who does what's expected of him, makes an open field tackle, then gets up and dances around. When Jerry Kramer threw the block that won the Ice Bowl in 67, he got up and walked off the field. No celebration. And Bro calls right. I mean, that's, that's what that generation did. I think back to my younger days in my home church, Memorial Baptist in Rockford, Illinois. There were two men that my dad told me about, though those two men never said anything about their service. One man... His name was, I just knew him as Mr. Harms. In our little farm community, he and his son, Dwayne, uh, ran the, uh, the local repair shop. And they fixed everything from cars to trucks to tractors. And I thought it was great to go in there and see all the tractors. But Harold Harms had fought in New Guinea with MacArthur. And he had shared things with my dad that he wouldn't share with others, and certainly not with a young boy, but my dad shared some of those stories later and about the things that, that Mr. Harms saw. I'll never forget those stories. I also noticed growing up that there was a man sitting on the other side of the auditorium, and he always sat in the same place. His wife uh, was already in heaven, but... Uh, his young people were teenagers in the youth group at the time. His name was Harold Revis. 
And what would get your attention about Harold is he was just this quiet, meek guy. But if you look close at him, his face, though he was the age of the other, many of the other men in the church, his face was very drawn. And his eyes seemed to set farther back in the sockets. But he, he would smile at you and want to know how you were doing. Godly man would talk to you. And then one day, my dad told me about Harold Revis. Harold had walked the Baton Death March and had spent several years as a Japanese prisoner of war. And so what I know now that I was seeing was a man whose body had been through very hard things. And yet I also remember him as a godly man, a gentleman who just never wanted to be in the spotlight. You hardly knew he was there. But he was part of that generation and will always be, in my mind, a great American hero. So what's the biblical basis for this humility? We don't have to spend a lot of time developing this because you know what the scripture teaches on this. There is only one who's great, and that's God. And anything great that is done in us that matters for the sake of others and eternity, God does that through us. We know that. But that great God reminds us of these truths. Proverbs 27 and verse 2, Let another man praise thee, and not thine own mouth, a stranger, and not thine own lips. I love these, these flights, and there's an organization that will load these World War II veterans up and fly them into Washington to the World War II Museum. And, and, and once again, it's just fun to watch these guys. And, and again, uh, some, some of the women who were out there, front lines, working in field hospitals and so on. Uh, but to just see them enjoying that someone is taking time to recognize all that they sacrificed. But the praise for themselves is not on their lips. It's others praising them. And again, the Lord tells us that any praise needs to come from others, not from ourselves. In fact, there's none born of women greater than John the Baptist. But what was John's attitude? He must increase. I must there you go. 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. So take responsibility for your life. Be frugal. Be humble. The next trait that marked the greatest generation was this. Number four, love loyally. Love loyally. The men of the greatest generation took their marriage vows seriously. Brokaw wrote, quote, It was the last generation in which, broadly speaking, marriage was a commitment and divorce was not an option. He goes on, I can't remember one of my parents' friends who was divorced. In the communities where we lived, it was treated as a minor scandal. The numbers bear Brokaw's anecdotal evidence of all the new marriages in 1940. 
1940, just before or as the war was getting started, uh, Hitler was already messing up Germany. But in 1940 of the new marriages, one in six ended in divorce. By the late 1990s, the number was one in two. This was a time when there was no hanging out or hooking up. Men asked women on real dates and had serious intentions in doing so. When a particular gal caught a man's heart, he proposed and they got hitched. And they were married for the next 60 years. They lived that long. By the way, don't let Hollywood tell you that it was different back then. That everybody was messing around and, and then people got married. Peggy and John Asensio had the kind of commitment to marriage typical of the great, greatest generation. They were married right before John headed off to basic training. Peggy kept her husband constantly in her thoughts while he was away. She said this, I never went to sleep until I wrote John a letter. I wrote every single day. I wouldn't break the routine because I thought it would keep him safe. When John got home, he and Peggy picked up right where they left off. John would sometimes have nightmares about the war, and Peggy was always there to comfort him. John said, quote, the war helped me to love Peggy more, if that's possible, to appreciate her more, end quote. Their commitment to each other was unshakable, and they entered into it for life. That's their picture. Now, what's the biblical basis? Let's be reminded, Ephesians chapter 5. That great marriage passage that reminds us of what marriage pictures. But in Ephesians chapter 5... We are instructed to love loyally. Love loyally. Here's what the scripture says in verse 24. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Guys, question, does God love you loyally? Absolutely. In fact, he loves us perfectly. What's our responsibility? To demonstrate to our wives that same kind of love. Love loyally. Wives, submit to your husbands in love, your own husbands. And husbands, love her from the bottom of your heart and remember that God has called you to be her Savior. So you love loyally, even if that requires enough sacrifice to take your life. And of course, Jesus is the perfect example of that. So the greatest generation took responsibility for their lives. They were frugal, humble, loved loyally. Next, the greatest generation knew what it meant to work hard. This goes along with the responsibility but think about the fact that they worked hard. In war, these men had learned to focus on the objective at hand and not to give up until that objective and the mission as a whole was accomplished. 
When they got home, they carried that focus over uh, to the world of work. They didn't fall into the fallacy that you have to find your passion to be happy. They could find happiness in any job they did because they weren't just working for personal self-fulfillment. They labored for a bigger purpose, to give their families the financial security they hadn't enjoyed growing up. As soon as they graduated college, if they did, many men today, or if they do, many men today want the things that took their parents and grandparents 30 years to acquire. They expect it. But the greatest generation knew that going into, again, debt was not the way to get the things you want. They understood that the good things in life must be earned by honest toil. Now I saw this on both sides with my, my dad's parents, with my mom's parents. Say, did you have World War II veterans in your past, in your family? Not that I know of. Both of my grandfathers were farmers, and you know what they were doing? They were growing food to feed the army. So they got that exemption, and they were glad to do it. One of my grandfathers died at the age of 40. The other one farmed until the war was done, and then he went on into the restaurant uh, business and, and did other things. But you know what? I'm proud of those men. Somebody had to feed the army. And I'm also thankful that as they were doing their job, they were teaching my father, my mother, to do what, what they uh, were so faithful to do, to work hard and to complete uh, the challenges, the tasks that uh, were before them. Now, what does the scripture say about hard work? Well, for everyone, Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine: Seest thou a man diligent in his business? He shall stand before kings. He shall not stand before mean or common, obscure men. God expects us when it comes to the work that he gives us to be diligent. We stay at it. We work hard at it until it is complete. That's, what, that's just a general rule that God, God expects from man. You say, how do, how do we know that? Well, it goes all the way back to the garden. The first man and woman... But the first man especially was given a task before sin. Work is not part of the curse. God, God gave that responsibility. Adam was to be a gardener, to keep that early garden. And what was Eve's high calling? Take care of Adam and help him be the best gardener. We're to be diligent. And then, of course, for the believer, we have added perspective, important perspective, Colossians 3.23, and whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Whatever your hand finds to do it, you do it for the Lord. It, it's, it may take a while, it may be hard work, but, but as you're looking at the task, you're looking beyond the task to the Lord and you're doing it to please Him. Work hard. Just two more and then we're done tonight. Next, lesson number six, embrace challenge. The greatest generation wasn't the greatest despite the challenges they faced. Listen carefully. They were the greatest 
because of the challenges that they faced. And again, that's why you young people need to be students of history. The things that were accomplished to win that war, unimaginable. I, I cannot even comprehend uh, the heat, the cold, uh, the danger. They embraced the challenge. Today, many men shirk challenge and difficult pursuits, believing that the easier life is, the happier they will be. But our grandfathers knew better. They knew that one cannot have the bitter without the sweet. Or cannot have the sweet without the bitter. And the true happiness comes from overcoming the kind of challenges that build character and refine the soul. The challenges they experienced made their joy all the more sweet because it was uh, tinged with the gratitude of knowing how easily it could have been taken away. Embrace the challenge. And does this not bring us back to what the Lord has, has told us about life? Go to James chapter 1, please. And James 1 echoes what Peter also taught about what we should be adding to our faith. But in James 1, we read this, verse 2, My brother, and count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations, various trials, testings, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting or lacking nothing. All right. So, God is going to allow those challenges in us to build patient endurance. Our temptation in the flesh will be to complain. What God wants us to do is embrace the challenge, realizing He's got something good. He's growing us. He is maturing us. And if you're not sure about what he's doing, you can't stop reading in verse 4. You have to go to verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. How good is that? So as he's building this godly character and an endurance in us, if, if we lack strength, if we're not sure what work he is doing, just ask God for the wisdom on how to handle it, and he will answer. So embrace challenge. God never said life was going to be easy. He did say that the afterlife was going to be easy. It's defined in heaven and eternity as rest. But he didn't say that we're going to have that complete rest now, though again, uh, we can have satisfaction in our own souls. And then finally, and in their materials, I love this, I love this last one, uh, number seven, keep it simple. Just keep it simple. I will tell you that that is one that brings a lot of conviction to my heart. Because life seems so complicated. All these gadgets that are intended to make life easier, is it working? No. I like what Jim Berg says. Uh, there's no such thing as Microsoft works. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, oxymoron. 
but keep it simple. Keep it simple. Part of the time that our Lord spent with his disciples was getting away, not only so that they could rest, but why? Just to clear their minds and simplify things. If there's a common thread in these lessons, it's having a common sense and a level-headed approach to life. This defined the greatest generation. In our day, when men and women are obsessing about finding themselves, the greatest generation knew what it was to uncomplicate life, to approach life in a way that was simple and refreshing. They didn't go on a diet. They simply ate whole food. They didn't exercise. They worked hard around the farm and the house. They didn't obsess about their relationships. They just found a gal they loved and married her. They always... <laughs> Amen. They always looked sharp, but never fussed with fashion trends. Let me just pause there. We have a bunch of family photos, both sides. Okay? Going back to the days on the farm. But you know what they did when they took a photo many times? They cleaned up and they put on a nice suit and they looked sharp. They didn't mull over which appliance better suited their personality and image. They just bought the machine that worked the best. Kept it simple. They didn't think about how to get things done. They just got them done. When Joe Foss, a celebrated and daring World War II pilot and then governor of South Dakota, was asked if he missed his younger days, he said, Oh, no. I'm not a guy who missed anything from anywhere. I've always been a guy who just gets up and goes. Kept it simple. Now, as we mentioned this morning, right thinking leads to right actions which lead to good feelings. Sometimes we let our thoughts get complicated and that makes our actions, our lives complicated and that brings anxiety to our hearts. And you know what I'm talking about. Feel like you're passing yourself in the night. It's not what God intended. Do you realize that when Jesus walked on this earth, he never had a time when he was behind or late or anxious? Now, that doesn't mean that when it came to going to the cross that, that he didn't uh, there, there was not the anxiety of that. But, but I'm talking about his daily life, his daily routine before his disciples. When the scripture says, fret not thyself because of evildoers, you know who was the perfect model of that? Jesus Christ. And he lived a simple life. And by the way, part of that simplicity was he was content with having little. And so what passage can help us with this? You don't need to turn there. You probably have it memorized, but Philippians 4, 6 to 8. Philippians tells us that we're to be rejoicing in everything. You know what that speaks to? A simple life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then the Lord, the Holy Spirit, through Paul, addresses to the Philippians 
how to deal with the anxiety. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep, that's the word for guard, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So when, when the complicated and the stressful wants to come into our minds and, and make life turbulent, don't be anxious. Pray, plead. Sometimes you're going to need to get along with the Lord and plead, supplication. Pray, plead. Praise, give thanks. And what does he promise? Peace. Peace. Well, I don't know how I can have peace. Well, good, good, good. It's all right because he said it's peace that passes understanding. You don't have to try to figure it out. He'll just give it to you. And I'm so thankful for the peace that he gives. And so when things seem overwhelming and complicated in life, that's just a time uh, or a reminder, it's time to get away with the Lord. Pray, plead, praise, and let him give you his peace. So let's conclude. The greatest generation took responsibility for their lives. They were frugal, humble, loved loyally, worked hard, embraced change, and they kept life simple. It's amazing to me how so many of these qualities that we've talked about, these traits, how many of those resemble the fruit of the Spirit? I don't know how some of these uh, individuals did it without the Lord. But you and I don't have an excuse because we are indwelt by the Prince of Peace. We are indwelt by the one who says, if you will rest in me, I'll give you strength where you can rise up with wings as eagles, walk and not grow weary, run and not faint. I think it is noteworthy that the background to the time before this generation did their greatest work was a time when they experienced having nothing, the Great Depression. I think that's noteworthy. When you have too much stuff, you, depend, you, you tend to depend on stuff. When you don't have hardly anything, you do tend to look up to God. But as you study American history and, and you study the history of revival in this country, do you know what happened after the Great Depression? It was our last period of great revival in this country. Many of those GIs went off to battle, not all of them. Many of them went off believing men who were looking to God. And you can read their testimonies, by the way. In fact, in our library, and I would encourage you to check it out, there's actually a DVD set entitled Faith of Our Fathers. And it tracks some of these young men whose dads fought in World War II. One, one particular place that they focus on is taking uh, Mount Suribachi in Iwo Jima. And now these dads are taking their sons, the grandsons of these American heroes, and they go back there and these dads not only talk about how God preserved them and, and what happened is they conquered, but they talk about how, God, how great God was to preserve them. 
And so it's okay not to have so much stuff. Don't put your heart there. Put your, put your affections on things above, not on things on this earth. And so as we look back, God had prepared them to deliver the world. The things that we've talked about that we need to apply to our lives, realize that God is working to prepare us because he wants to use us to help to deliver the world now. It's always intrigued me looking back at World War II. And I don't hear saints talking about it much. Maybe uh, some of you that have been saved a long time, you heard chatter about this. But I have to believe that those believers honestly thought with the axis of evil and the world at war that the Lord had to be, it was coming back soon. The hatred for the Jews in Europe and so on. The Lord's got to be coming back soon. And God turned it around. We're living, I believe, in a darker day than that day was. And so if we're going to be a generation that God can count on to bring light to the world and turn hearts to Him, we're going to need to practice this fruit of the Spirit as well and take responsibility for what God's called us to do. So parents, let's pray for each other that when we're gone off the planet, you, these young people are going to be committed to taking the torch of truth and sharing that to the darkness. And let's just walk with our God so that when we get to heaven, we hear his praise, his accolade, his well done. Let's be faithful. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757 488 3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.